When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to Unfiltered. In what might be the ugliest week of his presidency so far, Donald Trump went from dipping a toe in the pool of white nationalism to bathing in it. First, there was the racist tweet storm in which he told four American women of color, elected representatives, no less, to go back to their own countries. Then his followers took his cues and responded, chanting, send her back about Rep. Uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar at a rally in North Carolina. And after initially pretending he didn't endorse that vile rhetoric, here he was yesterday tripling down on his attacks. I can tell you this, you can't talk that way about our country. Not when I'm the president. A handful of elected Republicans have said rather politely that they disagree with the president. Leadership, however, is just fine with it. I didn't get to see the rally, but I saw a clip. The president didn't join in any chant like that. What the president did, the president did not join in. The president moved on. So here's tonight's headline. You break it, you own it. The Republican Party is now fully and totally responsible for these racist, racist, divisive, un-American ideas. They are yours as much as any policy is. In fact, it is the policy. Republicans can pretend this is just rhetoric, but when Central American children are put in cages at the border, as policy, and when the administration pushes to cut refugee admissions to zero, as policy, and when the president implemented a Muslim ban, as policy, it's not just words. It's the agenda. And yet, I hear this all the time from Republican lawmakers. Well, I wish he'd focus on policy. Let's focus on policy. I don't like what the president said, but I'm focused on policy. What a load of crap. Here's the deal. This idea that Republicans can compartmentalize Trump into categories is the lie of the century. Trump is not a buffet where you can take what you like and leave what you don't. It doesn't work that way. Trump voters don't get to separate his economic agenda from his cultural agenda. Evangelicals don't get to dismiss his naked immorality just because he panders to them. And Republican lawmakers can't pretend that what they're really purchasing is the legislation and the racist rhetoric, that's just the free sample that comes with it. Through every racist flare-up, Republicans have been willing to hold their noses and continue supporting Trump. It's worth it for a good economy, many will say. It's worth it for more jobs, for conservative judges. It isn't, though, and Republicans are cravenly playing a very short game. History will not be kind. No one will look back and think, well... Trump was a bigot, but the Republican Party nobly accepted that in order to pass tax reform. 
Or sure, he eroded our trust in every public institution, trampled on the Constitution, maybe even broke a couple laws. But we moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. There are no compartments. There is only all of Trump or none of Trump. And the Republican Party has chosen all. Now, joining me to discuss Trump's attacks on four American congresswomen is Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. Congresswoman, you have said your constituents have come out very strongly against Trump's racist comments. Michigan voted for Trump in 2016 by a very slim margin. Do you think this will impact his chances in your state in 2020? You know, I see, I wish that I could say that this election had been determined, but I think he could win again. I don't know. I, I've been really anxious to mm. be out and about this weekend. 111 degrees makes it a little hard. <laughs> yeah. But people are clearly, not only do I have the largest Muslim or Arab American population in the country in my hometown right. of Dearborn, they are right. very upset. But a veteran came up to me uh, today and said, Debbie, I just want to talk to you. And he had voted for President Trump last time. And he's not pro-democratic, he's pro-American, and he said, why can't this stop? What happened this week wasn't okay. Why can't mm -hmm. Republicans and Democrats just work together for this country? We're Americans. I agree with him, but he was clearly very disturbed. Yeah, I, it's disturbing. It's, I think it should be disturbing to everyone. It should um, be. Democrats, as you know, in the House just passed a $15 minimum wage. I know that you, many of your colleagues, are trying to focus on policy. Do you think these fights between, you know, the so-called squad and the president distract from those efforts? You know, I think I think that some people are doing it deliberately to take away attention from whatever issue it is. Uh, I think some people, what, what do you mean by that? Some people, well, I think the president, but I think the Republicans on this floor, the floor this week is we're having the vote on impeachment deliberately attack Nancy to distract from mm. the message. I want to say something. I want people to understand what is happening in this country, that I have school children that are third generation Americans that have come up. The first time it happened to me, I cried. A child grabbed my legs and said, Mrs. Dingle, Mrs. Dingle, I am worried that someone's going to come to our house in the middle of the night, drag my family out, and no one's ever going to see us again. Mm -hmm. And then when I heard it in different words, in the same school system, I asked the school superintendent, and he said, Debbie, you need to understand that's what our kids are talking about. Yeah. At a Tim Hortons this week in Ypsilanti, a Muslim couple was told to go back to their country. And Tim Hortons' answer, free coffee in Dearborn. They're not from Dearborn. It didn't mm -hmm. happen in Dearborn. It happened in Ypsilanti. Is that who we are as Americans? Well, no. Um, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, it's not who we, we should be. We um, should be. And there are real impacts of what this language is. Yeah, to, to, re, to real people. I know. I hear, I hear from people as well who are, who are really worried about the words seeping in to uh, the, the you know, social fabric of, of our country. Um, and in terms, in terms of that affecting affecting policy efforts. Um, as you know, the election of, of moderate Democrats are really responsible for flipping the House in 2018. Uh, Democrats who espoused some, some more moderate policies. Do, do you worry that Trump's message, that Democrats like AOC and Omar and Tlaib are, are socialists, they're too radical, they're somehow not American enough, will be a successful one in places like Michigan, where, where Rashida Tlaib is, you know, a district over from you? 
So I'm going to tell you that I actually think the president helped unite us last Sunday when he first mm. came out with these comments, because no people, nobody, nobody I know, Republicans, independents, and Democrats are really bothered by this. We've got a big tent. Our diversity is what we celebrate. We need to listen to each other. We've got a inside of our caucus. I think mm. we've, we're learning how to talk to each other inside the caucus, not outside on Twitter. Uh, but well, some I, of you aren't. <laughs> Well, we're getting better this week, okay? Okay. <laughs> uh, I did forget. It was for a week. You know, we've had a good week. Uh, but I do think that people, I mean, I've been, my Republican colleagues quietly, now I wish, well, one of my Republican colleagues who most people would not even think of as a moderate was pretty open this week in a meeting with the vice president and has asked for a meeting with the president because it's, it's, it's bothering them. Mm. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, thanks so much for your time tonight. Stay, stay cool if you can. <laughs> you too. Thank thanks. you. All right. For more, I'd like to bring in a host of CNN's The Van Jones Show, Van Jones. Um, Trump's approval is up since those initial attacks on those four elected um, women of color. Does that worry you? Uh, it does worry me. I mean, I think we're in a, in a, in a pickle here because what you're seeing happening now is this permanent kind of uh, a ping pong match where uh, the, the Democrats do something, people say, well, you guys are socialists, and the Republicans do something terrible, okay, you guys are racist. And we're going back and forth, yeah. back and forth, and, uh, you know, everybody can, can pick their side, but the losing side is the whole country yeah. uh, because these there are internal problems and external threats that are not being addressed mm. in the food fight. So when you just have a food fight and a bunch of cacophony, once somebody gets energized like Trump, even if he's wrong, that's going to pull support just yeah. because, you know, he's setting any kind of a poll. The reality is, uh, you know, Russia is laughing their butts off at us. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Democrats say Trump is a problem. Trump says the Democrats are a problem. Putin is a problem. Right. I mean, he's, he's you know, uh, helping a lot of this stuff happen. And, uh, we used to unite around common enemies. We used enemies. to uni unite but around common enemies. And, and external threats from China, external yeah. th threats from, um, uh, from Russia, going unaddressed in a unified way. So, look, I thought that what the president did was just despicable. Yeah. And as a person of color, uh, you know, that, I don't know if everybody understands. You know, when you're a, a kid of color, uh, you're trying to find your way, trying to figure out if you fit in. Go back to Africa. Mm. Go back to Africa. I'm a ninth generation American. Right. Uh, when I was a kid, I'd never been to Africa. Mm. Uh, and yet I got, you know, hit with that. And it leaves the sense that no matter what you do, no matter who you are, you're never going to be fully accepted here. Yeah. And uh, for the president to, to kind of back into that, I think, is really, really uh, despicable. Listen, when these young Democratic Congresswomen, especially Ilhan Omar, backed into certain tropes and you know, anti-Jewish tropes, yeah. uh, she at least recognized that she had done that, backed up, apologized, and then reached out to Jewish leadership. Mm. He's actually been working with Jewish leadership to try to get that train back on track. I don't see President Trump, if this is something accidental, uh, I don't see him making any acknowledgement no, or making any steps. And so I don't think it's accidental at all. Are you surprised at how well his racist rhetoric, his anti-immigrant ideas he's offered have resonated with a wide swath of Americans. Well, I mean, it's happening all across the West. I mean, this, there's something happening in the West. Um, if you look at France, I mean, right, I mean we, you know, we could be in a situation soon where, you know, Marie Le Pen is ahead of mm -hmm. France. Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's something happening throughout the West where large sections of the mostly uh, white population 
have enough anxiety economically, culturally, and otherwise that people can prey on them and be benefited, as you said, in the short term. And so I think it's up to Democrats to come forward with ideas that can unite us. Mm. And there's a big danger right now that we overreact to Trump. Trump says something extreme in this way, so we say we got to be just extreme in the other way to balance it out. But I think you'll wind up leaving a lot of people in the middle not knowing where to go and, and then more easily preyed on by demagogues. You know, there are historic parallels here. You can go back to pro-slavery arguments in the 19th century, Herbert Hoover's Real Jobs for Real Americans slogan used to repatriate Mexican-American citizens mm. back, back to Mexico. Um, language that was used around the Japanese internment camps. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, McCarthyism. Right. Where do you stack this against those moments? The, right up, some of the worst in our chat. Right, our right up there, right up there with it. And as you pointed out, you know, there's policy that goes along with that stuff as well. Yeah. But, you know, this is a moment, I think, you know, for Americans, you can't go outside and play because it's 8,000 degrees. Right. You, gotta, so you have to stay home. This is, I think it's a moment for Americans to really take a step back. Uh, uh, both parties are better than what we're seeing from them right now. I, I love the, you know, the bold thinking and, and, and the ideas from the left wing of my party. That's the part. That's the wing I'm a part of. But you got to figure out a way to also show concern and compassion for people who don't identify as Democrats, who maybe are afraid of some of these ideas, and say that you that you have their concerns at heart too. When we don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, uh, we wind up pushing people away, making them more vulnerable to Trump. It's a sticky problem for Democrats. We can have bold ideas, but we should also have big hearts and big open arms mm. for, the, for, for people who voted against us last time. If we don't do that, we're going to be in trouble. <clears throat> we don't have time to talk about it, but I do want to mention you worked with Trump on criminal justice reform yeah. um, with the First Step Act. As a result, 3,100 federal inmates will be released in the coming days. Yes. Congrats to you. Thank you. Van Jones, host of The Van Jones Show. Thank you so much, my friend. And Van will talk to World Cup champion Megan Rapinoe next at 7 p.m. Don't miss that. Next up for me, so Trump went there. What do Democrats do about it? And later, is the media biased against Bernie? Well, his camp thinks so. Trump was mad at a lot of folks this week, including New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman. Why not? Friedman published a piece titled Trump's going to get reelected, isn't he? This was his thesis. Dear Democrats, this is not complicated. Just nominate a decent, sane person, one committed to reunifying the country and creating more good jobs, a person who can gain the support of the independents, moderate Republicans and suburban women who abandoned Donald Trump in the midterms and thus swing the House of Representatives, swung the House of Representatives to the Democrats and could do the same for the presidency. But please spare me the revolution. It can wait. So should Democrats listen to him? Well, joining me now to discuss our former senior aide, Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, Joel Payne, and former RNC communications director, Doug High. Joel, I have been saying this for months, maybe even a year. Democrats pushing unpopular policies like decriminalizing the border and abolishing private health insurance are going to get Trump reelected. Everyone needs to take a deep breath. <laughs> These are primaries. Primaries right. are for contrast. They're for interparty squabbles like this. There's nothing wrong with having a robust discussion about health care, about Medicare for all versus extending Obamacare. Correct me if I'm wrong. Every person on the stage raised their hand to say they would decriminalize the border. Yeah, listen, these are these are these are these are things that the party will sort out here. By the way, I got to say, I disagree with Tom Freeman a little bit when saying that a Democratic nominee should focus on just moderates and pulling 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 from swing voters. Yes, that's important. 
important. Mm. They also have to energize their base. That's sure. part of the reason why Hillary Clinton lost three years ago is because not enough people turned out in, in uh, standard, mm. um, you know, expected Democratic stronghold. So that's also a part of it. Okay. So the energy is also very important. Doug, can Democrats get out of their own way? No, and and this Still's is not worried. Are you? This is, what, this is what we've seen so long, and it's not just the Democrats who are running for president. They also have a problem called the Squad, which pulls them and the conversation further to the left on everything. But I'll tell you, the day after the second debate, um, I bumped into a friend at, at lunch who works for one of the Trump super PACs and said. We won re-election last night. Oh I think my that's, God! I think that's overstating things. Yes, mm. of course. But they had a very good reason to feel good about Trump's prospects because of eliminating private insurance and the raising of hands for decriminalizing yeah. the border. Historically and great economy. He has forty-five percent approval sure, rating. I am not concerned. Um, you, you should be concerned because <laughs> the further they go to the left, the further the conversation is where Donald Trump wants it to be. The more problem Democrats are. So if the nominee is Elizabeth mm. Warren, let's be clear. This was a bad well, week for Donald Trump. It was a bad week for Donald yeah. Trump. He's had a lot of bad weeks, but he can still win. And as long as the conversation is where Donald Trump wants it to be, meaning if he's against Elizabeth Warren and she says, here's my 12-point plan for yeah, revitalizing right. and restructuring the American economy, and Donald Trump says, hey, that's great, but I'm going to save your plastic straws, Donald Trump wins on that conversation. <laughs> I mean, to his point, Elizabeth Warren, she's got a lot of plans. She's not the only one. A lot yeah. of the Democrats running for president want to talk about policy. You saw what happened to the news cycle. It was hijacked by Donald Trump yeah. this week. It was awful, but I think for him, fairly successful. He's not talking about, about policy. He's energizing the cultural energy in, in his but base. But was this a good week? I don't think it was a good week. Also, there's this idea that Donald Trump's this master strategist. He's not. Yeah. This was all accidental. This is, yeah, I'm sure his campaign can spin this into something positive for them, but this is not a winning week. It's not a winning issue. He tried it in 2018 with the caravan. It didn't work. I don't think it's going to work this time around either. Um, a Republican Jamaican immigrant in Queens is challenging Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez next year. Um, on Twitter, Cherie Murray wrote, I was hopeful when AOC won. She took on a Democratic political machine and won, but nothing has changed since. Why? Because she's only been focused on fame and politics of division and hate. We deserve and expected better. That's why I'm running. Your thoughts? Not concerned whatsoever for AOC's standpoint. The only thing I would be concerned about for AOC if someone was challenging her from the middle, she's not going to get outflanked on her, on, on, you know, obviously on her left, and she's not going to have to worry about a general election challenge from this woman. What she probably should worry about is being overexposed, because... Oh, most late. members of Congress, <laughs> most members of Congress in their first one or their first one or two terms are yeah. probably concerned about being seen as a national voice and not worrying yeah, about local issues. Down. So right. that's the only thing right. I'd be worried about. But she's very popular. I'm sure she reflects her district. AOC's got she's very bigger fish to fry. District, but she's also yeah. fairly divisive, and Trump is all too happy to make her the face of the party. He is, but but for her purposes in getting reelected or for the other members of the squad, the more Donald Trump makes them the face of the opposition, the more safe they are in their own reelects. If they're coming from far left districts or or just, you know, uh, Democrat plus 6 districts or you know whatever those numbers mm. may be, that helps them in their reelect because they are enemy number 1 for Donald Trump and that's a good thing for Well, Democrats. a number of House Democrats complained to CNN anonymously this week um, for, for a report that they thought the squad was distracting and distracting from policy and conversations about policy. We'll see if any um, uh, of, of the squad members hear that, uh, take that to, to heart. We'll see. Joel, Doug, thanks so much for Thank being you. here. Appreciate it. Up next, Bernie Sanders is not happy with the coverage his campaign is getting. Not happy at all. <laughs> Thank you.
In just 10 days, the next Democratic debates will be held right here on CNN, live from Detroit. For many of the candidates, this debate will be make or break. Money is running out for some, polls are lagging for others, and others still just can't get enough attention. My candidate of the week, Bernie Sanders, might want a little less of that this week after The Washington Post reported that his union staffers are frustrated with less than $15 an hour base pay, the minimum wage mandate that Sanders has made a central part of his campaign. He told the Des Moines Register that the campaign is actively involved in good faith negotiations, but also objected to their airing of complaints to the media, calling it not acceptable. It's actually a regular grievance from the Sanders campaign. Despite having one of the higher name IDs, 9.4 million Twitter followers and coming in second in mentions among the Democratic field by traditional news outlets this year, he's complaining about his coverage. Campaign manager Faiz Shaker told Politico, this isn't intended to be a sweeping generalization of all journalists, but there are a healthy number who just find Bernie annoying, discount his seriousness and wish his supporters and movement would just go away. It's a twist on the complaint Sanders had in 2016. Then it was that the media ignored him. Now it's that they outright don't like him. Is there any truth to it? With me now is CNN's chief media correspondent and the anchor of Reliable Sources, Brian Stelter. Listen, clearly when it comes to volume, he's getting coverage. But his campaign's complaints are that the coverage has been disproportionately negative. It sounds like they're asking for more positive coverage, which is not our job, right? <laughs> not our job. Not, uh, not our job. There's a okay. term in the, in the political world, uh, free, uh, paid media and earned media. Right. Paid media advertisements that you pay for. Earned media is the news coverage about what you're doing that you earn by being newsworthy. Right. I think oftentimes what the Sanders campaign wants and other campaigns want, they want owed media. They think they are owed oh, a certain so kind or a certain amount of attention just by virtue of being there. No, it is called earned media for a reason. They need to earn it. However, I think the Sanders campaign has a legitimate complaint here. You do? Okay. I think uh, for many decades, he wasn't taken all that seriously on Capitol Hill because yeah. he was a relatively uh, un, uh, 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 not a very powerful member of Congress. In 2016, that really changed. And yeah. my biggest regret, personally, just in the way I covered 2016, in my little world here, was that I didn't take Sanders seriously enough. Interesting. Like a lot of reporters, I assumed Hillary Clinton was going to yeah. get the nomination, and I wish I had taken his issues more seriously. Hmm. But I think there have been changes on that front in this 2020 election. Okay. Already, he is being taken more seriously. Yeah. Uh, th that said, and with, I with understand. that comes more media scrutiny. Well, that's right. That's exactly right. right. He's going to be if he's available for interviews, and I wish he'd be more available. Then with that does come more scrutiny, right? Uh, more, more skepticism on the part of the press. Right. I think it is right that voters and reporters wonder if he can recap capture the magic that he had in 2016 mm. a second time in a much more uh, competitive race. You know, one of his aides was quoted by Politico, a great piece by Michael Calderon about this issue, about yeah. these media critiques. Uh, the the aide said, you know, the issues that Sanders fights for, for the poor, for the working class, are not new and exciting. Right. And that's true. These are systemic problems with us for decades. But the challenge for Sanders is to make it new and mm. different yeah. by having different kinds of events, by going to different kinds of places. Yeah. There are lots of techniques you can use as a PR person or as a candidate right. to get that attention. Uh, there's another thing I, I thought about because I've interviewed Bernie. Yeah. Um, you know, he can be difficult. That's um, true. I want to play some sound we put together <laughs> of Bernie's greatest hits with um, reporters oh. and even even like town hall questioners. Take a look. Question was asked. It's a fair question, and I'm trying to. Okay, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, right. Look, if you don't, yes, they did. You know, I, excuse me. Shut up. Excuse me. 
Excuse me. Yeah. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me, ma'am. Well, your other hands are up as well. Did Jeffrey, do you have a question? I have to say this in all due respect. Are we already? We haven't inaugurated this president, and we're talking about 2020 because it's easy to write about. What else did I say in that? Tell me. No, you got it there. Read it. Read, read the whole quote. I don't have the whole quote. But the, Senator, he wasn't, of he okay. wasn't touting that's relations. That's my view on it. His point I'm, I'm was... Sorry. Okay, ma'am, I'm sorry. If you disagree with me, that's fine. That is, that's my view. I mean, <laughs> maybe it's not that he's getting negative attention. Maybe it's just that when he is in a situation where he's challenged, he does not always respond politely. He can be persnickety. And that was true <laughs> even decades ago in Burlington when he was the mayor yeah. in Vermont. He, he would react to the local press uh, in similar ways sometimes. He uh, hates these kinds of inside baseball questions that are so frequent on cable news and, and you know, sometimes uh, in the political sphere more broadly. He wants to talk about his issues. Not all issues, his issues. Right. And, and there's a part of me that respects that, uh, but there's a part of me that says you got to understand how the broader game is played. Yeah. Uh, and that reaction, those reactions he gives to reporters and anchors, I think his fans love it. But I'm not sure it's a way to appeal to everybody is else. It, is, it is it a way to grow? I don't is know. it a way to grow <laughs> right. or not? Okay. I'm not here to give Sanders advice. Sometimes working the refs <laughs> works on the right. We see folks on the right yeah. always working the refs, beating up on the press. Uh, let's see if it works for Sanders. So far, I don't think it is. Brian, great to talk to you. Right. Thank you. Uh, make sure to watch Brian tomorrow on Reliable Sources at 11 a.m. Eastern. The list of objectionable behavior, rhetoric, even policy is extensive. So why is the president's support from one corner of the faith-based electorate so unwavering? I'll take a look. In the red file tonight, Trump and evangelicals. It was a marriage made in heaven or maybe the other place, but it was an essential block of support for the president in 2016. And they got a lot of bang for their buck. Conservative judges, support for Israel, strengthened abortion restrictions in a number of states. But they also got a serial liar, an adulterer, a bully who's belittled prisoners of war and the disabled, who attacks women based on their looks and American citizens based on the color of their skin. The latest rhetoric out of the president telling four American women of color to go back to where they came from doesn't sound very Christian to me. But what do I know? Someone who can help me understand the evangelical justification of Trump? My friend, Joseph Lacani, professor of history, Christianity and culture, senior fellow at the King's College and author of God, Locke and Liberty. Joe, as you know, because you know me well, I'm I'm a nonbeliever, but yeah. I know a little a little about religion. I, I have a master's in religion. Um, you shall love the foreigner as you love yourself. <sighs> Leviticus 19.34. Yes. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Matthew yes. 25.35. You yes. shall not wrong a stranger for you were a stranger in the land of Egypt. Exodus 22.21. Yes. How do evangelicals rationalize Trump's ugly language or do they just sort of compartmentalize it? Yes, I love it, Essie, when you quote the Bible. I just love that, I have to say, out of the gate. <laughs> I know, gate. it doesn't happen often. <laughs> no, I love when it happens. And I'm going to add to that in a moment, but I want, want to give a little context, help to explain what's happening here. Uh, fear is the thing that is kind of motivating this contradiction in, in their principles, right? I, uh, there's a great quote from a, a troubling quote from an evangelical leader, a woman, who said that when they voted for Trump, they weren't voting for a husband, they were voting for a bodyguard. 
a bodyguard. They yeah. feel like they need protection. Now, we have to say quickly, there's, there are reasons to be concerned about the direction of the Democratic Party, the radicalism that really does threaten to undermine our civil liberties. Having said that, the problem with the bodyguard image is the president is not a bodyguard. And if you mm. treat him like your bodyguard, then you're going to give him a free pass every, every time you think that he defends your interests, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But there's a deeper spiritual problem here, I think, than even the ethical okay. problem that you've suggested. And it goes to the, the, the meaning of the gospel. Think about Christianity history. <laughs> historically, right? It, it is the most inclusive of all the ancient religions. Anybody could come in if you repent of your sin and guilt and come to Jesus. It's right. an open, open border religion, if you will, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So now we have the spectacle of the most um, um, anti-tribal, the, the, the religion of the, of the ancient world that was the least tribalistic. Now we have an expression uh, in American Christianity that is embracing the politics of tribalism, and that's a huge problem. And it certainly is counter, it seems to me, to the teachings of Jesus right from the get-go, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's yeah. not just who's my neighbor, anybody who's in need. Jesus specifically names the Samaritan. And to the Jewish mind in the first century, the yeah. Samaritan was a half-breed. He was excluded from the promises of Israel because right. he had, they had married the, uh, uh, the Assyrians. So right. Jesus has taken that to the woodshed, their prejudices by going right after that prejudice against the Samaritans, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So of course it's a spiritual crisis for the evangelical church right now. Do you think uh, if, if, if evangelicals are not going to leave Trump, because as you say, he's a bodyguard, do you see any yeah. of their support softening in 2020 with you know, everything we've now heard and seen from him? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to predict the future. I mean, the, the early signs are not good because there has not been a response by evangelical leaders, certainly not collectively, uh, mm -hmm. about this latest tweet from the, from the president, this racist tweet. Christianity Today magazine, the evangelical magazine, has, has written against it, but they have limited influence. So right. it's hard to know where it's going to go. But I think we've got a deeper problem here, though, uh, S.E., in that even if the evangelical world offers a rebuke to President Trump, we really do have to see religious and political leaders on the left be willing to come out and say, you know, something's gone wrong as well at the heart of the Democratic Party. If they're willing to criticize and, and, and consider anyone who disagrees with them to be racist, a homophobe, or a fascist, and that's a lot of the language coming out of the Democratic Party, that's yeah. a problem. So they've helped to set the House on fire. The problem now is Trump and his allies, they're throwing in incendiary bombs. <laughs> that's right, not the way. Right, right. We've got to pull back from the brink. We've got to pull back from the brink. Professor Joe Lacani, friend. Always good to see you. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Thanks so much. Great insight. All right. For space nerds like me, this is an awesome day, not just for the Apollo program, but for humanity at a time when we need to celebrate that. Stick around. Sometimes the stars align just right. 50 years ago today at 2017 coordinated universal time, just a couple hours ago, Apollo 11 landed on the moon, bringing with it Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins. A full 20 percent of the world's population watched it on television. And after that incredible feat of science, American innovation and sheer willpower, the world was changed forever. If you haven't seen CNN's incredible Apollo 11 documentary made entirely with archival footage of that mission, do it. It airs tonight again at 9 o'clock. With me now is CNN presidential historian Douglas Brinkley. He's author of American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. Doug, you are in Houston. You are part of the official 50th anniversary events. What is it like there? 
it's wonderful to be in Houston. There's a feeling in the community that we did it because yeah. so many people that live here had a role in Apollo 11. Uh, tonight at the Discovery Green, I'm speaking, but at the end of, a, you know, a, a, everybody's there, companies, it's like a space fair. Um, the, you know, um, U.S. Army paratroopers are coming down. Uh. You can imagine the spectacle. And uh, you, I w you would love it if you were here, Essie. I would. You and know then, I would. I'm jealous. Some, <laughs> you would. I know you would. And then the screens, they're going to do a big countdown to the exact second of Neil Armstrong. And then tonight, they're also showing outdoors the uh, CNN Apollo 11 film. Uh, awesome. Um, you were, because you and I have talked about this, uh, I know that you were really captivated by Neil Armstrong and the moon landing as a kid. I wasn't old enough for the moon landing, but I was absolutely enthralled by space. How significant an event was the moon landing in getting an entire generation, right, interested in space? It was everything, you know, because I grew up in Ohio. Um, all I did was um, monitor what was going to happen with the Apollo program. When they chose Neil Armstrong to be first, he was from Wapakoneta. It wasn't that far from me, and so I was yeah. enthralled by it all. And, you know, my mom was uh, one of those nine-to-five people, you know, and then you go to bed, eat dinner, go to bed. But we just blew our hours out of, uh, yeah. you know, out of the water just to make sure we were up for when, when the big moment happened. I don't know. You got you got to interview Neil, right? Years later, I did, and I, I did here in Houston in 2001. He flew his own plane in from Cincinnati. I, I met him at uh, the um, Johnson Mann Space Center, and we went into an area, and I got to be with him for eight hours. Um, wow. We taped him about six hours, and got to ask him everything. He was, didn't like to give a lot of personal information, but we opened him up a lot, including some of his exploits in the Korean mm. War, uh, the Forgotten War. Armstrong mm. arguably was our greatest pilot in that war, and of course, his piling was key to landing on the moon because he could have gone into a crater, but at the last minute, he right. made a very, uh, a very quick decision saving yeah. the mission. I've, um, I've talked to space scientists who think Mars is our next destination, others who think we need to return to the moon, that we have more to learn. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, I like the idea of both, but I think the moon makes sense because we could do it in the next five or six years. We could finally have the first woman on the moon. We've had 12 men. It's time to have women on the moon and also explore the ice caps, um, you know, see what's going on there and maybe use it as a spring forward for Mars. But it is true. Mars will galvanize the public more. Probably couldn't land there till 2024, or I mean, uh, 2040. Probably, it's a long wow. ways to go. But moon is moon is closer. I hope we do both. But NASA needs more funding to make all that happen. And Mars is literally a long ways to go. It's far. It would take it us a long time long to, to get there, even when we're when we're ready to go. Um, okay, so I've been asking a bunch of friends, some people you will recognize, what their favorite movies about space are. I'm going to show everyone some of those. But first, Doug, what is yours? Mine, without a doubt, was the movie The Right Stuff. And yeah. I later loved the book by Tom Wolfe. And I know some people say it's about the Mercury astronaut, so it's not about going to the moon. But that scene when the actor Sam Shepard, who is a great playwright, played um, Chuck Yeager, and yeah. that moment of breaking the, um, you know, the sound barrier there and landing alive, it really spoke to the kind of grit and spirit that all of the astronauts had to take on because, uh, you know, anytime you went into space, you were putting your life um, on the line. You were yeah. soldiers in the Cold War, in a sense. Uh, that's a good one. I endorse that pick. It's not mine, but I endorse it. <laughs> Doug Brinkley, author what, of American. What's yours again, Essie? 
Well, it's contact. What's your... It's contact. Oh, yeah. The great Carl Sagan epic. Uh, it's just yes. it's just perfect in every way. Uh, Doug Brinkley, author of American Moonshot, JFK, and The Great Space Race. Thank you so much for being here on this historic anniversary and for being in Houston, where you're getting to do all, all my favorite things. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Essie. All right. As I said, my favorite space movie is Contact, the incredible, perfect, mind-blowing Zemeckis film based on the Carl Sagan book. Here's what some other people you might recognize had to say. I know S.E. Cup has never seen Star Wars, which is just completely unacceptable, but the best space movie ever, Empire Strikes Back, second in the original series, just too good. This is an easy one for me. Favorite space movie of all time, easily. Apollo 13, Tom Hanks, you're the best. My favorite space movie is Outland, which a lot of people don't know. It's a movie, it's basically high noon in outer space. Perhaps the greatest film about interstellar travel has to be Total Recall. You've got peak Arnold Schwarzenegger, peak Sharon Stone, alien mutation things. It is a cinematic masterpiece. Empire Strikes Back for three reasons. Number one, Lando. Number two, Dagobah. It just seems like a completely freaky place. Uh, and number three, in the trilogy, it's the first chance you really have to see the power of the Force. My favorite is Star Wars. I still remember seeing that movie as an 11-year-old girl and being so inspired by the idea of living and working in space, something I'm still working towards today. It's difficult, but I would have to say that the right stuff is still my favorite one, just because it shows the risks that the, uh, the astronauts took. The musical has been given the feature film treatment and the trailer for this hot mess dropped just this week. Now, if you feel like you're on an acid trip when you watch this, I hear you. Who exactly asked for this horrifying movie experience that is attempting to be both for children and adults and I promise will be for neither? Cats, an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical based on T.S. Eliot's Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats has been terrorizing children for decades. I saw it when I was seven, and I think I'm still suffering the trauma. Cats is awful in any form. I am, however, still grateful for it. Cats was the first true mega musical. It pioneered the big production, transformational musical experience that paved the way for musicals I actually love. Les Mis, Miss Saigon, Chess, so many others. Cats brought people to the theater in unprecedented numbers. It was a huge commercial success, grossing over $2 billion worldwide by 1994. It was once the longest-running production on Broadway and in the West End, and it's because of Cats that we are going to the theater in record numbers. Just last year alone, Broadway grossed nearly $2 billion in ticket sales. There were 38 new productions last year and more than 14 million people saw a show. That doesn't even account for all the touring and regional productions. From Hamilton and Wicked to Beautiful and Dear Evan Hansen, there is so much great theater right now. Theater that can change people's lives. I know it changed mine. So for that, I say to Cats, you're terrible, but I thank you. All right, that's it for me. One quick programming note before I go. Make sure you check out our new original series, The Movies. It continues tomorrow night with the 2000s. Hear from the actors and directors for the stories behind the movies that you love. The movies tomorrow night at 9 on CNN. Stick around for The Van Jones Show. That's next.
We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.